everyone. Welcome to the Faith of Our Farmers podcast, the podcast devoted to the faith side of agriculture. Each week, myself, Frank Hartley, along with my co-host, Chris Elliott, dive into how our faith plays out for those of us each day that are involved in agriculture. Some weeks, we have guests that will share their testimonies. Other weeks, we introduce you to ministries that use agriculture to share God's love. And sometimes we'll talk about biblical subjects that tie into our daily work in agriculture. Let's see where God's going to take us to this week. Hold on, let's go. Chris Elliott, good morning. Hey, how's my brother-in-law, Frank? I am doing well. I am better than I deserve to be. <laughs> well, I'm not going to call you my favorite brother-in-law because I have too many brothers-in-law that would get me in trouble if I said it that way. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah, things are pretty good here, too. We've had some rains over the last few days, and it looks great that way. And so farming-wise, it's pretty positive other than it's really hard getting hay made. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Well, that's it. We're we're a little bit on the dry side, but we're hoping that we get a little rain here this week. And and we sounds like listening and watching the news. We really want to be praying for our brothers and sisters out west of the Mississippi, particularly. It yeah. sounds like it's pretty dry out there. So, um, for sure. So, yeah. so well, Chris, well, Frank. Yeah, go ahead. Frank, here uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a little piece in Lancaster farming that I cut it out. And it was the Colorado declared a meat-out day, a non-binding proclamation signed by the governor that, and some animal rights groups, I guess, were behind it, too, that they would not eat meat, at least on that day. Well, then <laughs> what was interesting was that Nebraska turned around and declared a pro-meat day on the same day. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Take care of Nebraska. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that's just kind of leading us into where we want to go today in this discussion. And, and that's just the human side of the argument where you've got some you know, humanitarian, animal rightish kind of peoples who are pushing that. But we want to look at it today from more of the, the biblical, theological perspective and the whole idea of, of meat eating and, you know, responsible animal use and that sort of thing, which brings us to introduce our guest today, Wes Jameson. And um, should we call you Dr. Jameson? No, I don't actually solve anything. Just call me Wes. I don't treat anybody. <laughs> well, I hope you treat us well. Yeah. Yes. There you go. There you go. Well, certainly, Wes, welcome here this morning. Um, we're, Thank you very much. We're so glad to have you on, and and we'll we'll definitely get into several of the reasons why I had the privilege of, of hearing you speak at a Animal Ag Alliance conference several years ago, discussing the bi- biblical side of animal rights and meat eating and things like that, and um, was very intrigued by it. And eventually saw you had written a book. And when we started the podcast, you were one of the first people that came to my mind and said, eventually we want to get this guy on. So we're very privileged to have you on today. So, Wes, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us some of your background and things like that. Yeah. Uh, name's Wes Jameson. I am a professor, soon to be retired, 
of Public Relations at Palm Beach Atlantic University down in South Florida. And long story short, kind of a long and winding road for me, I was in graduate school the first time getting a PhD in agricultural politics at Oregon State University. And that's when, that's when the Lord brought me to faith. That's when I got saved and, uh, relatively late in life. I was in my thirties. And, uh, in some ways that's a good thing. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, my faith journey there has led me to teach at a number of universities here and in Europe, always, always involving the intersection of kind of human behavior, human psychology and agriculture, how consumers and activist groups try to influence agriculture and our food supply. And That's I've been, uh, yeah, I've been extraordinarily blessed. I mean, I could, I could not count the ways in which I've been blessed in my career, uh, really oftentimes despite my best efforts. But uh, like I said, my first Ph.D. was uh, in agricultural politics from Oregon State University, actually studying 30 years ago animal rights groups and their attempts to change agriculture. And then I went back after a number of years to the University of Florida to get a second Ph.D. in public relations, specifically looking at persuasive messaging, how you construct mm. messages and arguments to try to persuade people. Okay. And uh, so that's kind of my background. And, you know, uh been married 33 years and now all my kids are grown and I'm a relatively young man, but I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of going to head away from teaching in academia to try, going to try to do some more research and writing on the topic. Okay. Yeah, fascinating. I see from the blurb on the back of the book here that you were ordained in the Southern Baptist denomination. Yes, I was an elder. In a, it was it was a Southern Baptist, but a Reformed Baptist church. I was an elder in the church, and then I was ordained as a pastor. Although I never actually filled the pulpit until we, I ha, uh, the senior pastor resigned, I had to fill the pulpit for a year. But yeah, I have some experience. I have some experience uh, in pastoring as well as being an elder and some theological training. Yeah, well, if you have some training in persuasive speaking. That certainly fits in with the preaching concept. Yeah, I I I I very much enjoy uh, Frank and Chris. I very much enjoy trying to understand how groups try to frame an argument, how they try to manipulate human psychology to get mm-hmm. people to support mm-hmm. their cause. That that's really what my area of interest is. Yeah, kind of like propaganda, that sort of yes. thing. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so 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 all this is kind of comes around now to the the animal rights thing. That's always been, or often for a long time, been uh, kind of a uh, emphasis of what you have done and studied. Yeah, it's thirty two years worth. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. Wow. Yeah, nice. so I, yeah, I I was you know, like I said, I, despite my efforts, I was blessed by the Lord. I. Went to Oregon State because back in the 80s, they had had back way, 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 way back in time, the Animal Liberation Front and a variety of groups were doing things like burning down research labs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so right when I was interested in going back to graduate school, two things happened. I worked in customer relations with public supermarkets, and we began getting protests at stores over meat. And this is back in the 85, 86, and they would put stickers on meat saying meat is murder. And I, that intrigued me. How could they make that point? And then at that same time, Oregon State had their mink research facility burned down. So I went out there to study animal rights and, 
you know, it's such a complex and yet wacky movement that it's the milk cow that never runs dry. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it never dries up, uh, you know, and so there's so much wackiness or what I should say interesting things that come out of this movement, like the Colorado and Oregon initiative about, about sexual assault on dairy cows if you preg check them. Uh, yeah, oh, you know, <laughs> you can you can never run out of topics, and yeah. so that's kind of my background uh, and faith journey. And the Lord's just been very faithful throughout. Great, great. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so easy for us as farmers to, to hear this stuff happening, and one, we just think it's totally bizarre and, and laughable, and yet there are people who really take this seriously and are at least in their own twisted way of thinking, genuinely concerned about the welfare of these animals. Yeah, I did a research project. I had an opportunity to teach and do research in Europe. I did a research project, gosh, 20 years ago now, 22 years ago now, that made the case pretty conclusively, I think, that animal rights functions in the lives of adherence as a religion. And, uh, and, it, mm-hmm. and the more and more you study it, the realize it's like a surrogate religion, uh, because it functions in their lives. And that's why, they, that's why they're so zealous is their identity is wrapped up almost like an abolitionist in the cause of, of, of protecting animals from, from what I'm not quite sure. Uh, and oftentimes mm-hmm. neither are they other than the cause itself motivates them. So it's been a very interesting journey. That's fascinating. Very much so. Well, how Wait. have you seen that? morphing over the years as you've looked at this for 32 years i don't i don't think animal rights looks the same today as it did back in the 80s and that's you know just from my observation and how how do you see it has changed and maybe why some of that change has come about well it was zealous in the beginning it had the, it had the fervor of a new radical mass movement mm-hmm. and and it was very zealous. You had a lot of animal liberation front attacks on research facilities and farms. It had a real abolitionist zeal. And then as is always the case with this type of movement, it either has to routinize, it has to become kind of like bureaucratized, it has to kind of settle into a bureaucracy, or it dies out. And so what's happened over, yeah, over the last okay. 30 years, you, you, you know, the original founders, it's like, it's like when you have a family business. The person who had the original vision dies, dies, and the, the grandkids don't have that original vision. What happened with yeah. the animal rights movement is at some point, if you're a redemptive mass movement that says that we're going to change the world, sooner or later you have to make some changes. And so early on they were calling for the ab- abolition of animal research, abolition of meat. Well, that's not going to happen. So the the pragmatists come in, and they go incremental, and they begin to do very small incremental changes to demonstrate that they could be successful. So what happened is what always happens to these sorts of movements. They become routine. The original founders leave. The Wayne Pacellis of the world go away, the Ingrid Newkirks, and people who know to, how to operate pragmatically with little small gains come in. And, and so that's what's happened. They're very much – a sort of mainstream movement now that's been co-opted by animal agriculture in many ways. And they're kind of, they're kind of a nuisance. We've learned how to deal with them in some aspects. Uh, and so they're going to be, they're always going to be nibbling at the edges, trying to make incremental change. But 
they're, they're a far away from getting what they originally wanted 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting, too, is and I, 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 I'll ask you if this is sort of correct or not correct. Given your time frame there of the mid 80s and then it kind of dying off uh, in some of the discussions. So I, I'm a um, both for Land Lakes and now I am was for with Land Lakes. Now I'm independent as a national dairy farm um, uh, animal evaluator for dairy farms. And so I, too, have done not anywhere close to the work you've done studying the animal rights groups, but have had those discussions and and had to deal with customers on the other end. And one of the things I find interesting in the timing is, is like you say, it kind of from the mid 80s, it started to back off. But some of the younger people today, um, I just had a discussion with a girl the other day and she was all over me about dairy farming and this and that. I said, you know, I said, if you go back and ask someone older than 50 years old, I said, animals didn't have rights and feelings before Pixar and Disney came out with their movies in the late eighties, early nineties. And she's like, well, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there's really four factors that led to where we are today. One was urbanization, right? Very clearly, there's an enormous literature that once people are alienated from their food supply, they no longer raise and slaughter animals. That that's one factor. The mm-hmm. more urbanized you are, yep. and this, by the way, this 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 you can go to Japan, any culture in the world that fits these four. One is it urban. Two have the, have the children been raised on anthropomorphic images? Disney, Bambi, have they come to see animals through their media and literature as having human attributes? Number three, science. This, in any culture where science teaches us that evolutionary the- theory teaches us that we're very similar to the animals around us. And then number four is you have a culture that emphasizes individual rights. Mm-hmm. So really what got, gave rise to this thing was an urban culture alienated from their food where the young people see anthropomorphic images of animals, emphasizes equality, and, and they believe in science as the way of telling them that, that animals are very similar. And then you have the animal rights movement. And you can go to any culture in the world where that happens, and that's where the animal rights movement is. Right. Okay. Yeah, so it's really a layered thing. It's not just one event that happened that has brought this about. Yes, because you'll have – I mean, I've inter- you know, for 30 years, I've interviewed a lot of farming kids all over the world. They see Bambi, and then they go out and shoot a deer. <laughs> I, you know, uh-huh. I mean, your kids, your kids have seen Fern Gully or other things, and they don't have any problem dealing with animals. There have to be a layer, four layers of veneer on top of each other for this really to take root. Right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Wes, let's get into your book. You you and okay. some other fellows wrote a book together, What Would Jesus Really Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat. Um, certainly a very, very interesting book, and it looks – uh, as working through it here, you're, you're kind of broke, broke the book up into sections. And I thought it was interesting for part one, you know, why words matter. You know, what, what does, what does that mean? The, the, okay. You can look at the national debate now and see how the, the side which seizes the word and fills it with its words are nothing more than receptacles. They're, Think of like an empty milk jug. A word is an empty milk jug. You can fill it with whatever meaning you want to put in there. And so the side which seizes a word 
and puts its meaning in there first and gets it out in the public psyche wins the debate. And mm-hmm. so you, you begin to frame, like, for instance, factory farming. While farmers are out there trying to chase economies of size and scale and efficiencies and profitability, the other side was framing it as something evil and demonic. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and also once, once something's framed, once you have the, the language accepted by the public, it's very, very difficult to reframe it. Right. And so words matter because that's how we communicate. And yet we tend to think that everyone thinks the way we do. So when we say gay, we may mean happy, but we know that those who have sexual different orientations use it in a different way. So in many ways, for your listeners, what we really see happening in our culture currently is a battle over the meaning of words. What does infrastructure mean? What does equity mm-hmm. mean? What does mm-hmm. equality mean? So words are how we communicate. Those who create the meaning of the words win the political debate. Right. And so it what depends we want on what your definition of the word yes. is, is. Right. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that, that's, I don't know if your younger farmers will catch that cultural reference. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and but, it, uh, it, sustainability is another one of the catchwords of the day yes. right now. And and mm-hmm. that is definitely one in the world of agriculture when when you go talk to a university person that agronomist, you know, sustainability uh for them tends to be, you know, how you take care of the ground and and, and maybe uh bringing in alternative alternate energy sources, things like that. That yes. makes a sustainable farm. You go ask the farmer, well, what does sustainability mean to you? Well, it means I'm going to have a farm that can sustain itself and I can give it to the next generation. Yes. Same yes. word, complete opposite, different, or not opposite, but different definitions of it. Mm-hmm. I've, right. had a, I've had a long and winding career. What, and one iteration of, of Lex Jameson, I was on the board of directors of the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State. Oh, oh okay. Okay. I know. Okay. And, and, uh, I once asked in a board meeting, can someone at least tell me what sustainable means? And there was laughter and said, well, it's whatever you wanted to mean. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. And that's it. That's, that's, that's it. That's it. Well, well, back in the eighties, when we first started farming here in Fulton County, an early popular at the time was Lisa, L-I-S-A, and it meant low input sustainable agriculture. And I joked around and said, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at that, you know, as far as the low input part. It's the sustainability that I have trouble with. Well, here's the issue, and this brings us back to theology, right? You know, ultimately, all issues of human ex- existence are theological. And Nothing's sustainable. I mean, even if you're an evolutionist, you, you look at the second law of thermodynamics, everything's dying. So right. mm-hmm. you can't – there is no 100% efficient system. So what we see is people really – and when you tease away what they're saying, they want to recapture a sense of Eden where there's perfect harmony in perpetuity without the fall, without human sin, without any degradation. Really what they want to do is try to capture that essence. And that's what we found over and over and over again. Because when you talk to them, there's, there is nothing that is truly sustainable. Everything collapses and falls apart and dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the scientists will tell you, yes, but what we want to do is extend the horizon by a hundred years, two hundred years. You know, right, we want, right. we want, we want the longest horizon for the most benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll come back here to the theological side of this whole thing is, 
that there are those who will attempt to make biblical theological arguments against the use of meat and animals. And I mean, I, I look at the scriptures and I just, you know, I, huh? Now, how did you get that out of that? But you know, just discuss that a little bit from your viewpoint and how you've seen that and dealt with it over the years. Well, first, for your listeners, you can eat dead animals and use the products of living animals with joy, with thanksgiving for the Lord has provided. Uh, that's unequivocally biblical. The Lord did it. The Lord ate dead animals for heaven's sakes. He kept the Passover. In the Old Testament, They, the amount of slaughter of animals as commanded by God, required by God, was in the millions of animals, which would have required confinement to raise that level of animals for the slaughter. So the death of animals itself is not problematic in the scriptures, and the human consumption of them is a blessed thing. So for your listeners, that's always the starting point is what does the biblical text actually say and what does historical record actually say? Also, the eating of animals is an allegory or a parable for, for believers because in the world as it is now, Frank and Chris, it takes the death of something for us to live. Whether you're going to kill a pet or whether you're going to kill an animal, something's going to have to die for us to live. And that is a metaphor for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. For us to live eternally, he had to die. So since the fall, something's going to have to die. And God was so gracious to give us animals. And and I always tell people, particularly young people, which have no concept, why do we use animals? They take nature that we can't eat and drink and convert it into things we can. What a blessed gift from the Lord to give us a room and an animal. Mm -hmm. So, So that's the starting point. Then to get kind of, to get into it deeper, what I found in my research and interviewing people is there, there are two things happening. They are aesthetically offended by the sight of animal death. And it is gruesome. It is wet. It is unpleasant. It is highly sensual to, to be in a kill plant or in a, in a, in a barnyard when you bleed an animal out. So they're aesthetically offended by the image. They are morally offended by the idea that we are causing death. And in many ways, they feel personally culpable for the death of animals. So they're going to try to somehow remove that from their lives. They have this compulsion. I am to blame for suffering. I need to stop. So they go vegan and they try to convert others. And then, of course, the theologians eisegete or read into the text. They begin from a a set of assumptions that animal suffering is wrong. Then they go looking for it. If you go looking for a communist, you're going to find one. If you go looking for a racist, if you go looking for a racist, you're going to find one. If you go looking for, if you're going to go looking for a text that says, you know, somehow animals are, are not supposed to die, you'll find it. So they, what they do, they begin from a series of aesthetic or kind of emotional assumptions, then they make the Bible conform to what they want it to say. And that's uniform. Clearly, conservative scholars across the board have seen this tendency in animal rights theologians. And, you know, and also another thing that's going on for your listeners, they tend to be millenarian. It's like they want to bring in the kingdom of God now. They want to bring in Isaiah, where the lion lays down with the lamb now, instead of someone in a future kingdom. And that's because they're, they're just, they tend to be very, very upset, offended, or otherwise 
discombobulated over the amount of suffering in the world. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, well, but, that, that, that upset, that discombobulation over the suffering in the world, um, you know, I, I, that resonates, I think, with, with all Christians as we see suffering going on around us and injustice. But to take that injustice against human beings and then to somehow convey that over into the animal kingdom is a big jump. It is. And, but that's, what, and, and that's the unbiblical nature that happens there as, as we make that, that jump across well, that chasm. We live in a post-theological age where very few Christians, much less non-believers, understand historical theology and systematic theology. On this case, you're absolutely right. The Imago Dei is non-negotiable. In other words, Mm -hmm. only people and people alone are created in the image of God. We are image bearers. We have a soul. And therefore, we, we grieve when we see wrongs and suffering of other people where we don't do it over animals because only people are eternal beings created in the image of God. But many, many, many Christians don't have, they don't understand that concept that somehow we truly are unique. So the Belgic Confession, Article 12, tells us how unique we really are in that animals creation was given for us to use to enable us to worship God. Mm-hmm. And and how many people do you know in your churches or when you travel around and read things like the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism or understand systematic theology and the this idea of image bearing of God or or in the Old Testament the nefesh or the ruach this idea that what really does it mean to be to have a soul and so you're absolutely right I, I think there's a historical and theological ignorance out there even among believers and that's why we yes. wrote the book. We, we wrote the book to reassure believers that you you don't have to apologize when you eat barbecue ribs, a hamburger, or, heaven forbid, veal. You can rejoice because the Lord is good, and he wants you to eat that animal. But, but Wes, wait a minute. My dog has feelings. My cat has feelings, Wes. Don't you see that in your dogs and cats? They cry. They yeah. smile. Well, the only feelings I see is hunger, fear. <laughs> uh, again, my understanding of social psychology is that we pre- animals are like Rorschach tests, ink blots. You know, one person looks at it and says, "That's my mom in a closet," and another one says, "That's a butterfly." Uh, pets are ro- <laughs> Pet- pets are Rorschach tests. We read onto them whatever we want. And so, so whether it's a dog or a cat, uh, we, we make them into instruments for our own use. Uh, and so if we want them to have feelings, they have feelings. You talk to, ask me this. Now I've, you know, I've been in primitive cultures. I shouldn't say that. I should say developing world cultures and they own dogs and they view them like a power tool. They don't, <laughs> they're yeah. an instrument. Right. They're, they're not, they don't, they don't laugh. They don't, they don't, they're not happy. They're a tool. So if you all ever have any extra time, if you're farming, you never have extra time. But if you do, there's a there's a book you should read called Man and Dog in the South Pacific. So the South Pacific Islanders kept dogs and uh, would live with them and and keep them as as you know members of the family. Then they'd eat them. And so when the when the missionaries first came with their pets, they were appalled at the missionaries and viewed them as barbaric because they wouldn't eat their dogs. 
uh, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a tool. Yep. And yep. so, and so basically you're right. Uh, in Western cultures, alienated from nature, there's a lot going on. I mean, there's a lot going on here. For instance, pets make the perfect children. They never abandon us. They never go off to college. They never leave us for another woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and we get to control them. Unlike our own children, we get to control them for the duration of their life. Uh, so there's a lot going on here, but at its essence, theologically, this comes down to two things, a denial of the fall and its impact on creation and a denial of the clear historical record and teaching from scripture. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I, yeah, I really think that the, the image of God concept is really, really crucial in this, you know, that we have a, uh, a biblical worldview there in regards to that. Yes. Yes. That's, and that's sort of the, the continental divide of the debate. Yeah. And then there'll, there'll be those that will say, because we're made in the image of God, we should assist God in redeeming his creation. You know, Romans, uh, what is it? Romans eight, all creation groans, maybe Romans nine, but, uh, that, that somehow yeah. we're, sp- we're supposed to be redeeming creation, but that's not the case. Otherwise Christ would not have eaten the Passover lamb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a quote from the book here I just want to point out on page 25 that was really good. The Archbishop of Mosul, for example, drew attention when he criticized Christians in the West for paying more attention to animal rights than to the plight of persecuted and martyred Christians throughout the world. And it's obvious that, that, you know, American Christians at this point are totally missing it in terms of a biblical worldview and who, and what we're concerned about and who we're praying for. I, I agree. And this, I, you know, I, it's good that I'm retiring. I kind of, my stock and trade was provoc was provocative statements. And I once made a statement to a very large Christian gathering that pet ownership bordered on idolatry mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and it, and it did not go well. And my wife asked me, could I please back away from such provocative statements? And, you know, I'll say something to your audience. Uh, you know, our children growing up would ask if they could keep pets. And we would both tell them, my wife and I, yes, but only if they'd be willing to kill them and eat them. Uh. <laughs> well, but, but, but yeah, no, that I, I understand it. And we as farmers understand that. My children understand that, you know, and it, it's, it, this is part of it. it is, is, you know, as the, as someone who who presents a lot of about animal care and, and and defending it, you know, our goal is to give that animal every day of its life the best possible care, the best possible food, the best possible everything it can have, and have one bad day at the end of its life, but do it with dignity. You know. Yeah, it, it, I agree. And 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 farm kids understand that. You know, that, you know, yeah, we get close to them. Yeah, we, we sometimes, we have special cows we miss when they have to move on to whatever place they're moving on to next. But that is part of what we do and, and we understand that. Um, can and you, you go, ahead. You, go Can I make one point? Yep. Yep. But your kids and you understand the point of that animal is to serve human beings. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's the big dividing line. That animal has no value in and of itself other than its value to human beings to serve them. Mm-hmm. And that's where the theological aspect of the order of creation is so important. And that's where the old confessions 
of the Reformation come in because they all address this issue. There's nothing new under the sun. This was happening 500 years ago, and they realized that if you didn't understand that there's a hierarchy in creation, we are vice regents. We are created to rule, not in a, we're not Alan Alda Mm -hmm. with creation. We are vice regents. We are rulers of creation. Creation is given to us to enable us to live and glorify God. Without that in place, of course you're going to think, that that animal should be left alone. Right. Well, and I think the thing that myself and I know others get so upset with is from the farmer aspect, you know, the discussion I just had with a person up in Canada about the whole thing, you know, and I said to her, I said, look, I said, if you choose to not eat meat, I'm okay with that. That's your choice. I'm not telling you you have to eat meat. And if you feel that animals have feelings and that's why we should not do it, so be it. But what I do get extremely aggravated with, don't accuse every farmer out there as an animal abuser. Because we are working hard day and night, 24-7, to give these cattle the best care we can possibly give them. And that's what we as Christians are called to do. And she's like, okay. well, uh, uh, she didn't have any comeback to that. She's like, okay, I, I think I get your point. And it's like, so when, when you when you extend the moral covenant to animals, in other words, you include them in your moral universe. That argument collapses because it's the same as slavery. Can you imagine a slaveholder? And there were Christian slaveholders that said we work day and night to make sure that our slaves have the best environment. In fact, it's it's counterproductive not to feed them well and take care of them. Mm-hmm. See, what's, what you're dealing with are people that truly believe the use of animals for human benefit under any circumstances is immoral. And so so they will criticize you as if you were a slaveholder trying to justify a moral wrong by treating the animal correctly. I And I've dealt with so many of these people, and they just can't get their mind around that that animal does not have moral standing in the universe. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and that's why they, they just cannot. It's like you're, t- you're speaking French and they're speaking air dude. Oh, yeah. They just cannot understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, so, I mean, that's kind of uh, – it's really about, you know, kind of your, your – assumptions that you bring to the debate once you understand those you can kind of understand where the other side's coming from for sure yeah can you can you touch on just briefly i know in your your the speech and i'll put a link on our when this when the podcast goes up i'll put a link to that uh recording from the animal ag alliance on our facebook page but one of the points that you guys made in that speech was was really talking about how the animal rights groups were infiltrating the mainline churches and, mm-hmm. and, and really starting to change uh, change the rules of the of the mainline churches of focusing more towards animal rights. Can you touch on that a little bit? And why are we missing that as churchgoers? Why aren't we seeing this happening when we know it really is happening? Okay, uh, again, I'll start with a kind of a baseline statement to help us understand. Donald Trump was was not a cause. He was an effect. He got elected because there was a great, there was a large number of people ready for his message. So he, he didn't create 
he didn't propagandize. He didn't create 40 million Americans or 100 million Americans that supported him. They were ready for his kind of message. Now, take that into the church. The reason this is growing is because you have a large amount of post-theological, urbanized, pet-owning Christians who the animal in their in their you know one animal is in their heart, one animal is on their plate, one animal is cuisine, another animal's companion. There's a ready audience in the churches for someone who comes in with a borderline heretical theology to teach them about the treatment of animals. So that's the baseline. There's a ready audience of people who don't understand theology and have not thought about it, okay? Mm -hmm. So what they've done, the animal rights groups, is they'll come in and create, they will seek for what I would call centralized churches that have like, like for instance, like the Methodists, they have a national organization or the Episcopalians. Mm -hmm. The more liberal denominations that have centralized leadership, animal rights groups have made this a social justice uh, issue and what they will do is work through the central governance of the church to bring about resolutions and guidelines mm-hmm. uh, because there's a ready audience for it. Right. And they will do things, for instance, like provide sermon notes, pre-written sermon notes, Sunday school plans. But again, you really can't sell somebody something they either have nor need, no need of or potential for. And the reason they're succeeding at, at at infiltrating the churches is because the churches are ready to be infiltrated. And they uh, they don't, and if you look kind of across the board, Frank and Chris, the churches that have been most susceptible are the ones that have abandoned the authority of Scripture. Right. Yeah. Yep. To start with, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, I think, a little bit to Frank and I, because we live in very rural areas, and, and we attend country churches. And can you imagine, Frank, oh my, having, oh my goodness. Having, having Sunday school lessons on, um, you know, PETA-based material? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not sure that would go real well. But 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 that's the thing, though. And and you know, I, it was interesting. I, I was I was asked to be part of a farm open house a few years ago, and and my section obviously was talking about animal care and how we evaluate animal care on dairy farms and things like that. And there was, oh my gosh, there was thousand people went through that day in small groups. And one group that I had just finished giving my presentation to, they were waiting in line to load on the wagon to go to the next station. And these two elderly ladies come up to me and thank you for your presentation. It's a beautiful day. I said, yeah, for sure. And all of a sudden this lady looks at me, she says, you know, it's not biblical to eat meat or milk cows. I said, oh, really? <laughs> I said, where did you get that at? Well, that's what our pastor taught us. And then she turned around, walked off, and got on the wagon. It's like, okay, that's interesting. Well, no, I, you 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 know this stuff as well as I do. You know, and then you just turn around and say, I don't know. I may have just fell off the turnip truck, but it looks like Jesus was eating lamb at the Passover, <laughs> yeah, and he yeah. was and, and he was cooking fish for the disciples. Uh-huh. I don't think I don't think they had a problem at all. Right in the land of in the land of milk and honey. Where'd the milk come from? Yeah, yeah exactly. It didn't come. It, did, it didn't come from almonds. Well, maybe the coconuts were dripping out, and that was the milk that they had. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it, it's called the promised land because you get meat and milk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and, you know, and we've lost. I just, one of the things that causes me grief as I've gotten older is we've lost a historical connection to the goodness of God to this country. Uh, in his sovereign providence, for some unknown reason, he blessed us with natural resources and intelligence to use them in a way that was wondrous and quite marvelous. And we've lost that sense of wonder at, you know, to be able to feed 140 people from one, far, you know, one farmer, that's a marvelous thing. We're not to be ashamed of that. That's, no. that's, a, that is God's providence to, to the world. And we've lost that. And that, that's really one of the most grievous things for me is to look at the loss of wonder that the, the bounty we have, the cornucopia that America has been for us has just been turned on its head. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, prosperity tends to lead to complacency. Okay. Well, Wes, just to kind of bring things around to a close here, what would you want to say to farmers in particular here as far as, you know, how we kind of proceed forward and, you know, what, what are some of the maybe final arguments that we would need to make or you, we need to hear that as a message that you would want others to be able to, to share? First, that not only are you not to be ashamed of what you do, you are to rejoice that God has provided for us people with the skill and expertise to take his creation, form it, and shape it so human beings can prosper. That is a joyous, marvelous thing. It's one of the, it's part of the image of God that we are creative and intelligent enough to take creation and shape it and form it for human benefit. And that is a marvelous thing. Secondly, the Bible is very clear. You can farm animals, you can kill them, you can use them for human benefit as long as you give thanks to the Lord that enabled you. And also, you realize that the animals have needs that have to be taken care of. We do not have a license to abuse them, but we can use them. And so with the, uh, it is a marvelous and wonderful thing that farmers are given the skills and gifts to do what they do. And that's a wonderful position to be in. As far as how do you answer, you've got to know your scripture. You've got to know what the Bible says, and you have to know the historical precedents, and you have to know about things like the temple. Millions of animals were being killed at God's command. So clearly he isn't offended when an animal dies. And so you've got to know the scripture. You've got to know the historical precedents. You have to begin from the idea that, you know, this is a noble calling. What you two do for society is one of the noblest callings of any vocation in the world and always has been. And so that's what I would tell the farmers who are listening. Know how to defend what you do, but realize what you do is extraordinarily noble and is evidence of the Lord's love for his people. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate uh, your... Ah, there's, there's no more noble profession than taking creation, adding human effort, multiplying that creation, just like multiplying the bread on the Sermon on the Mount to feed people. That is, in its essence, the Lord's work. I sit and count my blessings every day that God has given me the ability to do what I do. Um, yes. There's a lot of friends and family at times that don't understand why do you work six and a half days a week as hard as you work? 
<laughs> you know, why, why, why would you do this day in and day out? This doesn't make sense. You don't do a vacation. You don't do this. You have no time for that. And it's like, it's a calling. You know, now I sometimes call it an addiction, but it's a calling, you know, <laughs> to, to, to do what I do. And I feel blessed to do it. And I want to honor God and do the best I can. And so it takes that then, 14 hours a day, you know, the seven days a week when you're not in church other than that, you know, time to take care of these cattle and do what you do, you know. And um, so. Well, you feel the joy. It's one of the ways where you can feel the joy of the Lord is when you take what you what you're good at what you've been trained to do to bring joy to others. And you've got to admit, to see a person eat a really good veal chop or a a really good product and you see the joy on their face brings you joy because it was your creativity given from the Lord to shape creation to feed that person. Amen. And to me, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for, mm-hmm. sure. for sure. Yeah, well, I personally really appreciate the, the biblical perspective that you brought to this discussion, Wes. It's just been really refreshing for me to hear that. Thank you. For sure. And I think we would probably probably like to pick your brain again sometime as we learn more and delve more into this. So if you're Indeed. willing to if, if you're willing to come back, we I think we'd like to have you back again. So I am more than willing to come back and you all were gentle interviewers, so that'll be <laughs> that'll be a good time. <laughs> all right. Well, well we're we're kind of on the same side here. That's Makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. Yeah. yeah well, God sure. bless you, God and thank you very much for your time today. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Real quick, this is Frank from the Faith of Our Farmers podcast team. I uh, just wanted to share one quick thing with you before we left this week. You now have an opportunity to talk to us, literally. Uh, on our Facebook page, we have a link on there. We record and uh, do our podcast through Anchor FM, and they have it set up with the ability that you can call in uh, through this link and leave messages for us. And we would love to hear from you. Um, we are so excited. We hit 450 listens this week. Uh, we have listeners, of course, the United States is covered pretty good, but we have listeners from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Germany, United Kingdom. Uh, we would love to hear from every one of you. Um, so if you could go to our Facebook page, uh, you can follow the link on there of how to get in to record a message for us. Just say hi. Tell us whether you like the, what you like about the podcast, what you don't like about the podcast. You're welcome to share your testimony. Try to keep it 10 to 15 minutes at the most. Um, you're also welcome to put on prayer requests. And so again, just go to our uh, Facebook page, Faith of Our Farmers, and you will be able to see the link there on how to reach out to us and talk to us. One thing I will say, if you do not want your recording put on air, please say so when you uh, do the recording so we know that, and we'll gladly abide by that. But if you don't say anything about it, um, not wanting to be on air, stay tuned because you may be on air in a near future podcast. Thanks a lot, and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Faith of Our Farmers podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Faith of Our Farmers. You can find links to this week's podcast on our Facebook page under the podcast section. 
If you'd like to get a hold of us, there's two ways you can do that. You can get a hold of us first through our Facebook page. Uh, send us a message that way. There's also an email button on our Facebook page. You can email us at faithofourfarmers at gmail.com. If you know someone in ag that has a great testimony to share, or if you know of a ministry that combines ministry work along with agriculture work that you'd like us to feature, or if you just have a good topic you'd like us to talk about, please get a hold of us either through Messenger or through our email address. And lastly and most important, if you're searching out there today and wondering about a a faith walk with Jesus, may we suggest you go to this website, needhim.org. That's N-E-D-H-I-M dot O-R-G. On that website, you can find a lot of good information about how to start a walk with Jesus, or if you are currently walking in the faith and have some struggles and questions, this website is a great place, great resource to go to. Again, that's N-E-D-H-I-M dot O-R-G. Thanks a lot, and God bless till we talk next time. See you later.